I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. This is Dave Kittle, and I am the uh, practice owner here at Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City. And I'm joined again for part two back with Sturdy McKee. Sturdy is a physical therapist, a previous uh, private practice owner, and now he's a business coach, a consultant, an advisor, an author, a podcaster. What, what was something else you mentioned, Sturdy? A dreamer? Trainer. Trainer? Yeah, no, but not in the sense, not in the physio ATC sense, uh, you know, training, training employees, training staff, training leadership groups, like on different processes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And... I don't know. Sometimes just on that is like, maybe it could be viewed as like the boring mundane stuff, but it's like, if you're the practice owner, it is like extremely important and valuable, right? Yeah. I, you know, that's, why'd you call it boring and mundane, Dave? No, I um, mean, no, I, I love, no, I love I told, it, but I'm saying I'm, we're putting this I'm out teasing. on YouTube and, and iTunes and, and most people no. want to talk about NFTs and crypto and, you know, <laughs> right, uh, right. you know, uh, like, like fashion brands and stuff, but like, the stuff you talk about and you kind of geek out about is like the most important stuff for a practice owner or a business owner. Well, but, but in your saying that is exactly right because thinking about how to position that, think about how to communicate it, how to make it sexy, all that stuff, you know, has been one of the bigger challenges in my current business because some of it is, it's, it's, it sounds like it's going to be mundane, but the real challenge with it, the real problem is a lot of times you really have to think. Okay, so when we're starting out or early, early ish on, um, because it can, we can sequence things a little bit differently. But when we're talking about a vision, vision of meaning, um, and the reason for that is purpose driven, values driven organizations outperform their counterparts. They do better, they easier to hire, better employee engagement. I mean, there's a ton of research and rationale for doing that. But when you start thinking about, well, what's your higher purpose? Why does your business exist beyond making a profit? That takes some pretty deep thought, you know, and people kind of got to go back to the drawing board and really consider. And it's sometimes a little uncomfortable at times. Maybe they've lost touch with that. There, you know, there are things like that. And the core values, when we really lay that out and make those real and actionable and behavioral and then integrate them into the processes, operations of the business. Yeah, it can seem a little bit foreign, a little bit weird, a little bit, a little bit Mr. Miyagi, right? Like, why are we doing this now? And they don't see how it all connects. So one of the challenges I have is making sure they understand that it will connect, that it does connect, you know, something even as basic foundation, it's foundational, not just basic, as the core values will end up being integrated into the operations, into the interview process, into the recruiting and hiring process, into the uh, employee reviews, into your weekly meetings with employees. It permeates and it underpins the culture of the organization. So that's just an example of one of those things that some people have even done. I even had a client a couple of years ago when we were starting out, we started talking about the vision, like, oh, we did this. I'm like, okay, what is it? You know, what's your purpose? What are your values? Well, we have to go find them. I'm like, what? We have to go. But there, it's not something that goes on a shelf. You know, why would you do that work, that uncomfortable, you know, thinking, confronting reality, all that stuff, and then put it on a shelf? Like, no, 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 no. 
it has to come to life. It has to be operationalized in the business. And it's all that, it's that implementation stuff, you know, that, what was it? Alan Fine said, if reading the book was enough, we'd all be champions. We can read all the books in the world, but if you don't have some kind of structure organization implementation plan to make the important stuff happen and come to life in your business, then, um, you know, I just see people like on the hamster wheel, they just keep repeating and repeating and repeating and not, not really making progress. Love it. Quick story time. April 2019, <laughs> my wife and I, we visit San Francisco. Sturdy and his family is based in San Francisco. We had, uh, you and I, we had scheduled a meetup. Uh, actually, you took us around. You kind of toured us around uh, the, yeah. the top of the Golden Gate Bridge underneath it and the top. I mean, we were getting like the VIP treatment. So it was, it was pretty awesome. And then we, uh, we, we went out and, and all four of us, we had a meal, a lunch. And um, at the time, we were just catching up. I think you and I spoke briefly here and there at PPS years ago. We hadn't really interfaced much in person. But when even that time, this was like obviously a year before, a little, little less than a year before COVID. And I had, I had all these ideas and I was getting mentorship and gaining knowledge around mergers and acquisitions and you know buying revenue instead of creating revenue from scratch and, and all that type of stuff. And in myself being a physical therapist, practice owner, I had all these ideas and I had, you know, but I knew that the, the structure that I was learning was, you know, building a team around you that had like knowledge, wisdom, pragmatism, experience, all these types of things. And you were on my list in terms of one of those people. So we met April, 2019. Uh, and it wasn't until like maybe the fourth quarter or third or fourth quarter of uh, 2019 is when. I reached out and we talked more formally and, and more serious about all of this. And then obviously that was before COVID, but it's been a long time coming. And so if you guys don't know the audience, you know, so I'm a physical therapist, so is Sturdy, and he's part of our team, the Fieldmaker Group. And we are uh, speaking to practice owners right now in New York, New Jersey, in regards to acquiring their practice. And man, I'm learning a ton every day. It's tough. It's a lot of, it's quite a grind, but um, I can definitely see, you know, how it, you know, filters out a lot of people or weeds out a lot of people. Um, but part of why I wanted Sturdy to come on here on the podcast is to help practice owners um, learn more about this entire process. He's gone through the process. He's helped coach and consult other practice owners going through the process. You guys can go back and listen to part one, the first episode we had Sturdy on, and he dropped some nuggets in regards to some of those processes. But now I want to I want to talk a little bit more as much as you're able to, Sturdy, in terms of some of the tactical stuff. Because every time I jump on a call or a Zoom call with you. I'm either writing up paper and pen notes or, or I'm writing my, now I have an iPad with, you know, the digital pen and, and I'm, and I'm writing notes. So like, for example, uh, one of the things is like, you know, hiring and putting out job ads before you, there's more to the, what the strategy is, but putting out job ads and, and getting a pipeline or a, or a stable or a bench of potential candidates uh, before you even need it. And it's just like something like that is like, so it's kind of like, yeah, duh. Like it makes sense, but like it should, have been are, it, it should have been apparent. There's just so many things like that. So why don't we just start there? What are, what are some things like that, that you help practice owners with, or you see practice owners doing because they're so in the trenches, they're so close to the elephant. They can't even see that, you know, there's this big elephant mm -hmm. in front of them. Maybe it's something around, I know you're, you know, you're big in systems and, and processes. So what are some of the things where practice owners they can use your help. They can use someone else's help. But things that maybe they're doing too much of the day-to-day -day stuff and they, they don't delegate enough. Well, I mean, 
so you asked earlier uh, another time like where can they reach me i've started putting stuff on tiktok and that's something i just did yesterday was they're delegating the wrong things okay and so yeah delegation is a challenge and it's something that a lot of owners struggle with we it's that, that concept of being the hardest working player on the field. They're leading by example, by working the hardest and running the fastest and hustling the most. And they're not leading. They think they're leading by example, but they're not leading. They're not focused on their staff. They're not giving them the time. They're not making that transition or even aware they're supposed to make the transition from hardest working player to coach. Right. And, we, and um, if you're running around the field and doing the job of all the players and getting in their way, that's something that needs, needs to change. Um, but there are so many little things and so many of them are things that once you see them, you can't unsee them, but it's not necessarily obvious. I mean, it's, it's the stuff that you don't need to figure out for yourself, right? You can, if you want to, and there are plenty of people who do it and we're conditioned to do that. Now that's another kind of blind spot. We're highly, highly conditioned to go out there and do it alone and to not make mistakes. And, you know, when I say conditioned, even if you're kind of over that and you're, you've evolved beyond that, think about the people you're hiring, right? Think about new grad doctors of physical therapy. They've spent literally 20 years in school, right? Where collaboration was called something else. Do you know what, what's collaboration on a test called, Dave? Uh, cheating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're taught not to collaborate, not to work together, and you're taught to be right. Right. So you're taught to be right and do it by yourself. And the problem with that is as soon as you graduate, okay, as soon, the moment you're done, it's a team sport. Everything from there on out is a team sport. You're going to be successful through your collaborations. You don't have to know everything. There are other people who've been down the path before. They can tell you, they can teach you. You can go to trainings, you can read books. You know, there's a ton of brilliant content. The problem with kind of doing it all on your own is how do you curate that? How do you organize it? How do you prioritize? You know, and, and there are plenty of people who've tried that. You know, the DIY idea is great. And I'm working on something in that realm, too, for the coaching thing to kind of without having to sit down in meetings every week and all that other stuff. And, you know, the things that people get nervous about really providing a program that you that empowers them, enables them to do it themselves more. But go ahead. I'm, I'm running down a track and I'm going to get I'm going to get completely off onto a tangent. So. No, no, no problem. No problem. <laughs> Let's jump over to potential exit strategy or succession plan for a practice owner. So the practice owners that we speak with or the colleagues that we all know, I'm seeing, you know, some of the common questions or themes, and then I'll even do research, mm-hmm. right? I'll go on YouTube. I'll go on LinkedIn, uh, mm-hmm. YouTube, LinkedIn, and Google in terms of what are some of the videos or the content that gets the, the most clicks or the most awareness. So for a practice owner, Sturdy, uh, if a practice owner comes to you now, I think it depends on how well they are as a business person in terms of like confidence and negotiation. But does a practice owner, a physical therapy practice owner, do they need a broker to sell their practice? If they haven't done it before, it's probably advisable, right? I mean, if you're buying and selling houses all the time, do you need a real estate agent, right? But if you haven't exited, you haven't acquired, you know, you haven't been through the process. There are a lot of places where you can make mistakes, and it through the due diligence process, because that happens on both sides, right? Everybody talks about it from the buyer perspective, but the seller usually wants something more than just cash, right? They want to make sure their staff are taken care of. They want to make sure the model is there, the patients are cared for, that the reputation, the community, you know, whatever those priorities are for that individual, they need to vet that with people that they're selling to as well. And they need to know 
that they need to know how to do that, right? So having someone on your team, um, an advisor, a, a literal broker, um, other folks who, anybody who has kind of been through those things before is going to be able to point out, again, some of these things that might seem obvious in retrospect, but you're likely just to miss them, you know, skip right over them if it's your first time through. And again, kind of back to that, everything after graduation is a team sport. Why would you not get somebody on your team who could help you, you know, avoid the pitfalls, optimize the valuation, uh, you know, make sure all your boxes are checked, make sure the people that you're dealing with on the other side are reputable and ethical and nice and, and all those things, if that's what's important to you. Got it. And I'm sure there's a sliding scale in terms of cost or like a percentage of the purchase price for a broker. And I've heard different numbers. You probably heard different numbers. Sure. So you think they're worth 10%? A broker's worth 10% of the purchase price? It depends. I mean, it's like your billing company, right? If they're, if people go around and they shop billing companies based on price, and I want to shop a billing company based on results. <laughs> because if they're leaving, you know, let's say your bill, we use a billing company as an example right now. If they're charging 6%, you know, of every dollar goes through your business and they're not collecting the final 10%, then are they worth it? Absolutely not, right? You're, they're, you're losing money. If they're charging 6%, but they're collecting every last dollar and they're helping you optimize, you know, your revenue and giving you feedback and streamlining, so helping you streamline so you don't get denials and projections and stuff, they should, in essence, be paying for themselves. So if they... If you find the right people, right, you find the right realtor, they will help you optimize and price your house at the at a price point where they're going to pay for themselves. Same thing should be true of your broker. And if they're, and I'm, I'm kind of talking in generic terms here because I've, the only ones I've really worked with, and I'm one I, I knew well in California for a long time, he passed away. Um, but there's some other folks and they, you know, they work real hard. But think about that real estate example too, because I've talked with brokers who, kind of started out as, oh yeah, we would love the referrals and help out. And then they end up being the buyer's representative, right? Well, if they're the buyer's representative, they have the buyer's best interests in mind, right? So you're going to, if you're up against something like that, you probably want your own agent of some kind helping you because, you know, who knows what the broker's negotiated with the buyer on the other side. So you're going to want representation. You're going to want to make sure that, you know, you're being treated fairly, that these are kind of the things to expect from someone who has your best interests as their primary driver. So in that example, you were saying a, a buyer that is interfacing with that broker, that broker would have to disclose that to the potential oh, sure. seller, right? Like if they're kind of working both sides or... Oh, sure. But that, well, yeah, and just like a real estate agent, right? They've got to tell you they're representing the buyer or they're the buyer and seller's agent or whatever. But it's funny. All of us in healthcare, we think, oh, well, they're, they're still going to look out for me. They're still nice. They're still whatever. Just because somebody smiles at you and is friendly does not mean they have your best interests in mind, right? So you're going to want someone who is your advocate on your side of the wall, whether that's an, at the level of broker, whether it's an advisor, whether it's somebody that you know who's been through it a couple of times or someone who's done a bunch of acquisitions, you know, themselves. You don't go down the path the first time alone, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Got it. How about we switch over to different scenarios or different things you've seen? Obviously, we'll say, you know, anonymous, no names, no practice names, anything like that, no practice owner sure. names, uh, 
what have you seen in terms of percentages of the purchase price? How much percentage price at closing? How much as an earnout? out? Maybe. So obviously every owner that's listening to this, they want 100% cash at closing for the, the highest purchase price available. Um, and it's not well, always reality. It depends on a lot of things, right? Yeah. Uh, how about we take a little bit different angle on it? How can you increase your likelihood of getting more of that, like leaning that direction, right? Getting more of the upfront. And, you know, regardless of the price that you negotiate, if you're trying to, we want whatever percentage, 100%, 80% upfront, and then be paid out the remainder over time or whatever, the likelihood that you could walk away early, the likelihood that you could get paid more upfront and not kind of over time or contingency based or whatever is the better your business is run and the more more like a business it is. So there are a lot of practice owners that own a job. Okay. And and what I mean by that is if you don't show up and do work every day, your your the wheels are going to come off, right? That means you own a job. You own the business, you own a job. If what you really are striving for is to own a business set of systems that continue to run and a group of players that continue to run, you will still have to do some management and coaching, right? That doesn't mean necessarily for everybody. You could have one or two direct reports and do that in a few hours a week and take care of the books and maybe do a little bit of marketing and relationship stuff. And you could stop working after six hours a week and still have a business that's running and thriving and stuff. And people kind of freak out about that. And when I first thought of that, like I I knew other people were doing, I had no idea how to do it. It drove me a little bit nuts. But one of the things I think was even actually was I was at a panel at my PT school, go, went back as a practice owner, and there were four of us or five of us or something up there. And one of them said, you can't not work in your business. You have to be there and it has to be, it's your brand. Da, 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 da. And um, the irony was this was somebody who had previously before opening their practice had worked at Health South. And I'm like, well, okay. And I just, I, I upset everybody on the panel and and the professor and everybody else too, which is not, you know, me is not unusual, but I was like, okay, I don't know how to do it yet, but it's one of my goals. Cause what I do know is Howard Schultz isn't pouring coffee at every Starbucks. Right. Right. And I'm just like, that ain't right. I don't know the right answer and I can't tell you how that, how to do it, but I do know you don't have to be working 12 hours a day, 10 hours a day, every day to run a business. And, you know, that's where I kind of started focusing and spent the next decade really dialing that in and figuring that out. And, you know, that's how people own three businesses at the same time, right? That's how they do multiple projects because they're not, they're not spending all their time on the day to day. And that's another interesting point. When I try to meet with people for whatever reason, not just sales calls or whatever, but just like, we're going to consult, or we're going to talk about something or collaboration or whatever. Something I never expected. And the ironic thing is that the folks with the biggest businesses with, that are presumably, you know, not just the wealthiest, but supposedly the busiest, they got a thousand employees, right? Or they got 90,000 employees. Those are the people that make the time and can say yes and schedule something in a couple of days or when they come back into the country or when they're not traveling or whatever, they're the most generous people with their time. They can, they do. And meanwhile, somebody with six employees is like, oh, I just don't have the time. Oh, I just can't do it. And you're like, how does that even work? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it's almost an addiction, right? That's how we get our feel important, feel valued is because we're, we're scrambling and hustling all the time. And, uh, you know, I have a, a friend, a contact through one of the entrepreneur groups who his company literally went unicorn last year, right? A billion dollar company. 
you have 30 minutes to talk. Yeah, sure. You know, and almost immediately. Right. And that is a skill set. It is learnable. It, it is something you can do. And, you know, let me say one last thing here. There are a lot of owners that I uh, talk to about this stuff and they'll go, well, but I want to treat patients. Perfect. Because if you spend the time and you budget the time for managing and strategic work and all that, then you have the time to treat patients, right? Because you have that time to do whatever you want with it. You could travel, you could spend it with your kids, you could go back and, and work with patients, you could create new programs for, you know, whatever groups in your community and stuff you, you want to do. But you now have the luxury of choosing what to do with that time, not because if you don't work, your business is not profitable. So are these the types of practice owners that I kind of, I've joked with you guys on the board a bunch of times about the physical therapist who kind of stumbles into opening up their own practice. Is it that, or is it a hybrid of like someone who wants to treat patients they've never learned or gotten out of their comfort zone in terms of delegating, like, like, or, or even chopping up their schedule. Like some days they treat and some days they only do business related stuff, systems process. They do operations type stuff is it what i mean maybe there's not just one thing but is there a is there something to identify i yeah. guess it's someone that it, like you said it's someone that can't spare a few minutes here or there um right are those let's say this are those practice owners are they able to i mean they, they probably have to make a concerted effort but are they able to get out of that rut and get to a place where they're kind of unlocking time in their life yeah, and their schedule sure yeah, absolutely. It's not all of them want to. Okay. And that's something that I, I, when I talk about kind of being addicted to the hard work and stuff, not just being facetious. I mean, some of them can't seem to break that cycle. I think the first, the first step as with anything is awareness, right? Michael Gerber wrote an entire book and created an entire company around this idea, the e-myth. The e-myth is the entrepreneurial myth that entrepreneurs are born and they go out and they, they're unique and whatever. He instead talks about an entrepreneurial seizure, which I equate to more of a, at least in my own personal experience, more of kind of a temper tantrum, right? Of I'm going to go do it uh, kind of like a toddler, right? I'm going to go do it by myself. So something triggered that, whatever it was, sometimes it's dissatisfaction, sometimes it's frustration. Like, you know, in my case, I was interviewing for jobs that I didn't like. And I was like, well, why don't I go ahead and roll the dice now and try it? I had a safety net. We'll see how it works. It worked out. But yeah, it's, it's a uh, dissatisfaction with the status quo. It's wanting to do something that isn't being done. That's one of the cool things about all entrepreneurs. They're visionaries. And and I mean you, if you have a business, you are a visionary in the sense that you saw something that didn't yet exist, right? And you then painted that picture for yourself, for your spouse, their significant other, for your investors, if you had them, for your partners, for your you know, new employees for the patients, for referral sources, for all those people. You explained what was going to be there that wasn't there yet. And that's, that's kind of the definition of visionary. So you, you come up with that stuff. The, the saddest part is in order to get that started, very often they have to work really hard and do everything, but they get stuck there and don't realize they don't have to perpetually work super hard and do everything that the better they can choose great people and organize and run a great team the more freedom they will have. And it's not just more freedom for yourself. You have a higher functioning, happier, more engaged team. And when you have a happier, more engaged team, you have happier patients and customers and clients, right? So it ends up being this really virtual, virtuous circle. You know, you 
chip away at it. You start organizing, you do the right things, you, you foster and coach and nurture and support the team. And, uh, they become more and more independent, more and more self-directed. Yeah. And then, then you really get to a point where you can scale it and you can continue to grow. But, and then I have a friend, she's a CEO. They, I forget what they have now, 240 or something employees. And, and this is a, a, a PT practice, right? 240 or something employees. And, you know, she still has the time to pick up the phone. Right. Or, and she's busy. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, oh, she's sitting around. But if, if you had a, Hey, do you have 20 minutes for a quick call or something? She can make the time because she's learned what to delegate. I think we mentioned that earlier. Like they're delegating the wrong things. The biggest thing they're delegating that's not right is the learning. And when I, I, I get people coming to the webinars and stuff or folks will listen to the podcast perhaps and they'll delegate it to somebody on their staff. And then the staff member will be like, well, how do I get the owner to do this? I'm like, well, get them to show up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> number one, get them to show up. They'll see the value. But if you're delegating that and then having that person convince you that something's worthwhile, that's it. That's a, you, you got it all backwards, right? Keep the learning. The learning is the one thing they can't ever take away from. Okay. So do the learning yourself. Delegate the other stuff. Whatever else it was that was keeping you from doing that, you can hire people to see patients. You can hire people to answer the phone. You can hire people to do bookkeeping. You can hire people to do your marketing. You can hire people for essentially everything else in your business. Okay. Except, and you can include them in strategic planning, but the strategic work and the learning, those are the things that you should covet and not let anybody else do or not let anybody else do without you. Got it. So, and also all this that we're mentioning is because we're, I mean, like the, the global talk, we're talking about exit strategy, succession plan. We're talking about helping practice owners optimize their practice, sell it for a higher multiple potentially. And maybe we might acquire their practice, who knows? But the things that we're talking about in terms of delegating and and changing their potential situation is because that's how they can actually, like that's one of the biggest levers that they can potentially sell it for a higher multiple if they're not producing the revenue, if they're not treating patients, if they are working on the, the bigger vision, right? As opposed to working in the business, they're working on the business. Right, working on the business. And again, when I, before I read the email, I didn't even know what working on the business meant, right? I heard it, I, I was, I knew I was supposed to be doing it, but I didn't know what that looked like. So that's a good resource. Do the, do the summary. If you haven't heard the book or read the book, you don't have to read the whole book. It's actually a little long. Read the summary, it has key points that are really critical. But let's even step away from, I'm gonna negotiate a higher multiple. Let's say the multiple is what it is, right? People and business owners are not focused on their own efficiencies and operations. And I have a talk, a speaking presentation I do, the two things, the two things to increase your profit and keep it. And in the PT practice, it's visits per case, making sure that matches up with what people actually are prescribing and write down. Uh, because what a survey a couple of years ago that was done showed that 90% of patients are not finishing their plans of care. Okay. That, that, that to me, that was just simply offensive as a profession, right? We're not finishing. We're not getting people across the finish line. Um, so it's an ethical obligation to do so. But imagine that 90% of your customers aren't going all the way, right? What, what's the revenue loss there? It, it's crazy, right? And small changes, that's the other thing. If you look at business per case number, right? Visits per case. How many visits you saw last month divided by how many new valves? That's it. 
Okay. And if you do a three month running average, it'll smooth out because month to month, it might bounce around a little bit. But if you look at your plans of care as written and there's a discrepancy there, you know, let's say it's 10%. Well, if you can increase your visits per case number by 5%, all of that money goes to the bottom line. Okay. Because all of your costs are already sunk. You're already paying your staff. You're already paying your overhead. You're already paying your rent, already paying everything. So, you know, folks do get caught up on, on like, well, what if I get seven X instead of six or five? Okay. That's fine. But what if you currently are running at a 10% profit margin and you could increase that profit margin by 50%? So effectively your five X on your old profit margin is now seven and a half X on your old profit margin. Because you're getting 5x on 15 instead of 5x on 10. Okay, did I make sense? Definitely. The other one that is just pure leakage and is terrible and people don't have a way to do it, and this is, again, the unsexy stuff that we do um, together, is the units per visit or, you know, their their billing. So are they billing for what they do? And and you want to be compliant. You definitely want to be compliant, right? There are too many bad things and consequences. And if you're not compliant and somebody's coming in looking at your books and looking at your business, they may not want to buy you, right? So you want to be compliant. But what I've also seen is I've, I've never seen, I will say I've almost never seen ever, ever, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, maybe even more at this point, never seen a staff therapist overbilling. Okay. So is that just take uh, that in- fear of their license, their fear of malpractice, fear of uh, trying to? Well, I mean, there's not- no, in- yeah, there's no incentive to overbill. Number one, um, and there, you know, a lot of folks in healthcare kind of have that Peace Corps gene, and that manifests in, in ways that they think they're protecting their patients, and um, they would want to be more conservative rather than optimizing billing. And the thing is, if you document and you bill for what you do, again, very often. There is a leakage of three, five, ten percent. That's work you're already doing. So, you know, people want to go out on network, they want to cancel contracts, or they they want to negotiate a better contract with the insurance company or whatever. They're still not even optimizing what they currently have, which which once again, if I can change that by three percent or five percent, right? That translates directly to my bottom line. There are no additional expenses there. Right. So if I if I, if my current profit margin I have a million dollar business and my profit's $100,000 a year and I optimize my visits per case and I get, you know, 5% increase. Now I'm at 1.05 million, right? If that's $50,000, $50,000 is all profit. If I do the same thing with my billing, I've now gone to 1.1 million. That's $100,000 more in profit, right? If I, my multiple in my market is 5X, that $100,000 is half a million dollars. Why in the world would you not do that? You know, and hopefully the answer is because I didn't know until now, and now I'm going to go do it, right? I'm going to get help to do it or whatever. But I still know people that are like, you know, we talk about this, I can show them, and they go, well, you're too expensive. Dude, I don't charge half a million dollars, right? I don't charge a hundred thousand dollars or 50. So, you know, the idea that, again, mindset, there are no expenses in business. They're only investments. Okay, so if you're spending money on anything, whether it's a coach, whether it's a broker, whether it's employees, whether it's a billing company, marketing, there needs to be a return on your investment. So and that return is their return is either monetary like dollars or time or or is the return only something yeah, hopefully that's, both. Uh, measurable. Yeah, I mean, the the 
time, energy, and money are kind of your three sources of power, right? So, and you only have, you have time's the one that you really, you can't replace, right? If I'm feeling a little bit low or slow, I can have a coffee and, you know, do a little exercise and I can get my energy back up and stuff, right? For the afternoon, um, or I can take a 20 minute nap or whatever, right? You have hacks that you can do to manage yourself. Money, you can you make more money? Yeah. You know, there are, excuse me, there are lots of ways that you can make more money. And we use that as an excuse all the time too, right? Oh, I don't have enough money. Okay, that may be true in the moment, but there are ways that you can, especially if you've got an operating business, there are things that you can do to, to improve that. Time is the one thing that you never get back, right? And everybody has the same amount of. So how you manage and, del- and you know, what we say, deploy those three things is ultimately going to determine how, how well you do and, and how successful you are. Is it ever too early for a practice owner to, you know, start looking and exploring in terms of exiting or selling? I mean, like you said, they probably should speak with someone like you first and kind of make sure that their practice is is optimized. And that way, you know, it probably makes the process smoother. But is it ever too early? Like maybe a practice owner in their, let's say, like in their 40s or 50s. Like, is that too early or is it or never too early? No, because the ultimate goal, like we talked about before, is to have a business that you don't have to sell, right? It ends up being kind of an annuity. It ends up being something that you're not having to, you have to spend a certain amount of time doing it, but you can be really deliberate and budget and figure out what that is. But it doesn't have to be necessarily full-time, particularly for any kind of a smaller business. And by smaller, I mean even 50 or 100 employees, you know, it, it you budget your time, you structure it properly, you set direction, you know, you have a lot more freedom. That freedom allows you to exit the business as a business and sell it for, you know, optimize the multiple and all that stuff. It also gives you the opportunity, the choice to not sell it, right? I mean, if I'm, maybe you need to, for whatever reason, you're going to move, you're going to relocate, you're going to, um, right now, you can do a little, so much more stuff remotely anyway, but maybe health reasons, maybe, you know, family, taking care of somebody, all those things are very valid reasons. But then now you're in a position where you can budget and decide whether that's the right thing for you, not because you feel like I'm so tired. One of the things that is left out of all this is like the first five years, most most businesses fail due to cash flow, right? Lack of cash flow. They don't generate enough money to pay the bills or they, or they outgrow themselves or they outgrow their cash flow and they don't have funding or financing and that type of stuff. So that's kind of a typical scenario in the early stages. After about five and especially after 10 years, most businesses fail because the owner gets burned out. You know, they're tired. They've done it long enough. They're done, right? They don't want to keep doing this. Well, the good news is you don't have to, right? You can still own a business and hire an operations director and manager, right? You can hire other people to do the day-to-day stuff. And, um, you know, that's not simple necessarily. It's not easy all the time to get the right people. And often you have to kind of go back to your business design and make sure that you have the margins to, to be able to afford that and still sustain the profit and all those things. There's, there are different moving parts and different tensions and competing priorities, perhaps, but it's all possible. The thing you want to do is map out how do I get there? And then you can make a deliberate choice about whether or not you want to do that. You know, not say, well, I can't do that. You can. You absolutely can. Does it fit with your values? Does it fit with your priorities, with your lifestyle, with, you know, the things that are important to you? But 
So, and, and you, when you still had your clinics, you were doing the business coaching and consulting on the side or, or in tandem, right? Uh, remotely. So you were on the that. side, Dave. I've been doing it full time. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah oh, that, I'm sorry. So that was full time for four or five years? Yeah, for a good three plus years. Um, yeah, the, the PT practice with multiple locations was the side hustle. Got it. Know? So, um, in terms of other practice owners listening, watching, mm-hmm. is that important for them to have something else? Like they should know the next step or the next chapter of their life, right? So, whether it's more time with grandchildren or kids or traveling or something that's going to replace their income or be their, their main income. Right. Are those some important considerations? Like those for you, like, it seemed like you already had it set up. So maybe it's been a while since you were even thinking of that. Well, no, no. Cause this is, this is some of the stuff I do, right. One of the things we can do and I've done with a couple owners is reimagining your business for the future. And in this case, I've done some talks on a future that's already here. In other words, a lot of the stuff that we were just a few years ago talking about, I mean, three, four years ago, when you talk to people about telehealth, everybody's like, oh, I don't know, I can't do that. COVID hits and suddenly the adoption cycle, you know, speeds up, right? So, you know, I was trying to convince staff to get on the telehealth bandwagon five, six years before it was a thing. And, oh, they just couldn't could imagine seeing a patient without like putting your hands on them or whatever. I'm like, well, what about when they're traveling? What about when they're, you know, oh no, I just can't, can't figure, can't, I don't want to do that, you know? And then when, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So it, it, it should be the mother of adoption, right? Um, when they needed to use it, suddenly everybody was using it. So we've got these tools. We've got the stuff that we thought was going to take a long time to you know, for consumer behaviors to catch up, for consumers, the patients to understand and to appreciate and to embrace it. And, you know, now that they have, most of us haven't adapted our businesses to it, right? But if I could see you one of my three visits this week or something remotely, right? I don't have to drive it because that's another thing. So many of the owners are so caught up in the cost. Like if we're talking about canceling a contract or, or whatever, people used to kind of say to me, oh, well, you're out of network, whatever. Yeah, yeah. All of the same challenges are there. Okay. Because deductibles have gone up. Copies have gone up, right? All the financial stuff is there and people don't seem to equate that, but it's there. But they get really nervous about, oh, well, you know, their copays are so much higher. Are they going to come in? That's only one part of their expense, right? The inconvenience of leaving work or leaving my family or taking time out and the inconvenience of, you know, getting there. And the time spent doing all that is huge. And we don't put enough stock in that. If I'm driving 20 minutes each way to get to you, that's 40 more minutes aside from the visit that I've invested in that. If I could save that once a week, that'd be huge, right? But we're, so we're not adapting. And I'm talking as an industry, certain practices are, certain people are, but as a, as a big, you know, profession, industry, big picture, we're not adapting to the things that consumers really want. And then we wonder why we're not as busy as we want to be, you know, and we're also say this, we're the best kept secret in healthcare. So if you have a physical therapy practice, right, if you have OT or speech, same thing, you're the best kept secret in healthcare. And what I mean by that is the total available market to you is about 20x. And we can go into why that is, but about 20 times the number of people you're currently seeing. People don't know you exist. Okay. If you draw a 10 mile radius around your location, how many of those people know that you're even there? Number one. 
And if they do, whether they do or not, do they know what you can do? Right. I got in trouble with a group I was advising because of the language I use, but I'm like, my mom doesn't even know what I do. Right. As a PT after 20 years. So we're not doing a good enough job of educating and teaching the public and, and making the, you know, the pitch of how it is we can help them. And the reason that's so important, and it's not like, oh, I don't know about marketing. I don't know about this. It's an ethical obligation to tell them because very often you're the best, most efficient, most effective option for the vast majority of those musculoskeletal cases. And they don't know you exist. They're putting it off and they're suffering through and they're managing or they're taking opiates, God forbid, right? Or they're getting injections where they could get an infection or something else, or they're, you know, and the side effects of corticosteroids and all that stuff, or they're getting imaging that doesn't do anything to fix the problem, right? And, or they're having surgery where they're going to end up coming to see you anyway, right? Where that you, I mean, what are the, there's so much research out there now that you could literally prevent surgeries. You have the same outcome after a year or two years as if they have surgery in PT or if they just have PT. So why are you not screaming that from the rooftops and telling everybody you know that we, we do a great job with this stuff and you should you know, at least give us a shot? Other than online marketing, what other creative ways have you seen practice owners do that to reach a bigger community audience? What do you mean by online marketing? Let's clarify that. So I, so I use a ton of Google ads. The, my whole in-home physical therapy practice was built through Google ads. Now we're doing a little bit of Facebook ads as well. And at any given time, we're getting new patients through word of mouth or from the Google ads. So, um, yeah. word, word of mouth, word of mouth, leverage word of mouth is, it's the most powerful thing. Um, you know, we used to live in a world where your face was your brand. Right. Meaning that, you know, people lived in villages and got around on horses or foot or carts or whatever. Right. So the baker in your town, they did well or they didn't based on how they how, how good their product was, but also how they treated people. Right. If they were cheating people or they made an inferior product or they were rude or whatever, they would suffer and somebody else could come in and do that. And, and that was true of, of essentially everybody. Right. We've come full circle. So. The online reviews and all are hugely important because that's a form of leverage word of mouth, right? You think about that village thing, they didn't have to advertise because everybody knew who the baker was or the brewer or the you know butcher or the blacksmith or whatever, right? And maybe there were two of them and you like Charlie better than you like Dave, whatever. So those are all things that we're now in a much bigger ecosystem, but word of mouth is still one of the most important things you can do because you've immediately got better credibility, right? When someone tells you to go and, uh, you know, go see you, you've immediately improved the credibility. The rapport is and rapport and trust are on the way. As soon as they talk to you, they're going to develop rapport. They already somewhat trust you because they've been, you've been vouched for. So advertising in any medium by itself, especially for something like healthcare or something like what I do is can be somewhat effective, right? But I've got to figure out a way in that medium to advance my credibility and rapport and trust. It's one of the reasons like videos are cool, right? Because you can get on YouTube and TikTok and other stuff and, and teach people things and show them. And by showing them immediately, your credibility rises and all the rest. It's a lot, you know, I think it's a lot more effective than some of the other media for advertising and stuff, but ultimately word of mouth. So, you know, other relationships and, and, there's been a big move away from physician referral, you know, relying on, and there's some bunch of stereotypes. They've, some of these folks have very effectively 
you know, use, like, you don't have to buy doctor's lunches. Well, I didn't buy doctor's lunches, but doctors bought us lunches, right? There were ways to do that, that, you know, to flip the script. You provide great value. You do a great job for their patients. They will tell other patients, you know, and um, word of mouth. I mean, basically, physician referrals are just word of mouth. It's just a different channel, different person's word of mouth. Right. But if you think about leverage points that you mentioned earlier, a primary care docs seeing how many people a week? Under a week yeah, at least. Okay. 30% of those people statistically are musculoskeletal patients. Right. So if they're seeing 150 a week and 50 of those people are musculoskeletal, how many of those people could you help as a PT practice? Most likely all of them. Yeah. I mean, at least 40, right? Of those 50, are you getting 40 patients a week from any primary care doc? We're definitely not. But then right. you're by office, Are you getting one? Not either. Oh, no, nobody is, right? But that's because they're, we go back to the education and what's their musculoskeletal education? Well, and what's their education around who is the expert, right? They're going to refer to another physician. Well, they end up waiting for that physician. That, you know, how many of your referrals, non surgical referrals, are from orthopedic surgeons? And I'm kind of talking generically, right? But if that patient had to wait to go see the orthopedist, and then get sent to TT, why are we not talking to the primary care docs and going, send them straight to me first, right? How long do I have to wait for the spine surgeon? You know, well, he's booked out three months in advance. Guess what? If I see them and they're a surgical candidate and I call the spine surgeon, they're going to get in within two weeks. What? You can do that? Like, yeah, because the people I refer to the surgeon, and and I've literally had these conversations with friends who are surgeons, right? Their conversion rate on the things that they do, well, I'm thinking of one in particular, a spine surgeon who was complaining about the referrals they got from primary care docs. Okay. This is a long talk around marketing, but referrals they got from primary care physicians. And he was really frustrated because his conversion rate to surgery, because that's what he was doing. He saw a clinic in order to get surgeries. That's why he saw people in clinic, not to medically manage them, to get them taken care of some way, somehow, but he wanted to book his surgical days, right? They had to see 10 patients in clinic to get one surgery. That was his ratio from the primary cares, right? And I said, oh man, I hope, I hope we're okay. You know, when we send you folks and he's like, oh no, you're, you're one out of three. I'm like, oh, okay. And when you track that, he's like, oh yeah, yeah, you're 33%. He's like, so I know his odds are triple, right? Better than triple that he's going to get to book a surgery if he takes in one of our patients than if he takes theirs. So why do you think he's waiting? You know, he's booked out, but he will fit them in if we call. Right, because he's going to get a surgery, or likely to, or his odds are so much much better. In that scenario, if you're referring a patient that's someone who has quote unquote failed physical therapy, and then you're oh no no them- not necessarily. I mean, you see people that, I mean, if I see an ankle sprain right that they send and they're unstable, right? I mean, it's not that they failed PT. We we test them and it's like oh you know that need they, you need to get a consult and you go see the surgeon. You're likely a surgical candidate. Then the surgeon assesses and they decide. Right, based on multiple criteria and stuff, whether to send them back to you or whether to get them in or whatever. But think about what that does. Oh, you, you were saying any surgeon because I thought you were talking about spine surgeons. Well, that too. Yeah, I'm, I'm just Got yes. It. If they, if they, I mean, you have certain things you're looking for with a spine patient. You have certain things you're looking for with a shoulder patient, a knee, ankle that you're going to immediately refer them, you know, to get them into the, the surgeon. Right. Well, if their options are go from the primary care doc and wait three months to get seen or six weeks or whatever versus they can see you in 48 hours and then you're like oh 
you need to see somebody, you pick up the phone and call the surgeon and say, hey, can we get them in? They're going to get in in four days, seven days, 10 days, not three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, right? So what's that do for the patient, right? And everybody listening, if they're in clinical practice, they know that they could potentially do this. Why are you not doing it? Because now you're a huge resource and value add to that primary care doctor, right? And to the patients. And it's all because, and to the surgeon, but it's all because of what you're doing for the patients. So if we're sitting back waiting for that person to cycle through the traditional pipelines, it's, it's crazy, right? But this this is why a lot of the health systems have been buying up the mom and pop PCPs, the primary cares, right? Because then they keep all the referrals in network and they try to make the, like here in New York city, they buy, you know, the mom and pop, now it's NYU mom and pop primary care. And then they legally or illegally or it's whatever, but they want to keep all the referrals <laughs> in network. So instead of that PCP referring to the worth, you know, the outpatient physical therapy office nearby that they've known for five, 10, 15 years, they have to refer to an NYU orthopod or physiatrist or something. And the patient goes through the whole medical model, pain meds, maybe an injection, maybe an MRI, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then they're sent to physical therapy and they want to keep that in house as well you know, NYU physical therapy, and maybe some of those folks might say, oh, well, there's now patient physical therapy office nearby that I could go to. And that's if they speak up. And if they know, like you said, it goes back to the awareness. If they know that that outpatient PT office is nearby. Be the practice that orthopedic surgeons want to send their mom to. I mean, that's hard to do, but if you can be that place, one thing I've learned is a lot of the surgeons, particularly primary care to maybe a little bit lesser extent, but essentially all physicians, they don't want to be told what to do, right? So you can capitalize on that. You know, if you're being told to send them here, but you, you know, again, those conversations, where would you send your mom? And I I tell patients to ask doctors that, right? So if they're like, okay, is this where you would send your mother or where you would send your wife or where you would send your daughter, right? And you watch them, right? If you're talking with the knee surgeon and you say, is this where you'd send your partner, your husband? And she looks at you and goes, that ain't it. Okay, where would you send them, right? You want to be that answer. You want to be that place because they're going to then, they want autonomy. And not everybody, you know, we can't, it's not going to be everybody. But there still are independent practices. There still are people that don't want to be told what to do. There, um, you know, a lot of those folks cycle through those places too, before it's over, yeah, they get bought, but there's, you know, particularly, I know in California anyway, if I go open my own business again, there's no non-compete. I can go work for somebody else. There's no non-compete enforceable. You know, it's, you you can't restrict somebody from making an income. So all those non-competes and stuff, even if you buy my business, maybe I can't do the same thing in the same spot exactly, but I can move a little bit or I can do something a little bit different, or I can go work for somebody else, even next door doing the same thing. And if I'm if I'm employed, there's no enforcement at all there. So take advantage of the rebels, take advantage of the folks that really truly do want the best for their patients and deliver that. And and you're you're not gonna lack for patients. Yeah, for sure. Well, Sarty, you've been extremely generous with your time. Really, really appreciate you wanting to lost track of time, Dave. Sorry. No, no, we're 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 totally good. We're we're fifty-two minutes in, fifty-three minutes into this. So it was awesome. Sturdy, thank you so much for your time. It was awesome to have you back. So anyone that's watching, listening, can you please tell the audience where they can connect with you, reach you online, find out a little bit more about 
your coaching and all of your services and all the ways that you can help practice owners across the country optimize their practice, improve improve their business, and probably decrease a lot of their stress and overwhelm. Well, yeah, not just this country, by the way. I have clients in Canada and other places. So, you know, we can sync the times up and all that stuff. But yeah, sturdycoaching.com, that's probably the best place. And then you can subscribe to the email newsletter. I don't send out a bunch of extra stuff. Um, You can get on the Facebook groups. If you're not sure, just shoot me an email. My email, my cell phone, everything's on the website, sturdycoaching.com. Awesome, Sturdy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com, or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.